Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. If you have a, uh, a smartphone as well, um, you might have worked out. There is um, free Wi-Fi. Um, please don't stream SkyGo during this, um, this YouTube or anything like that. Um, we're reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. And this is part four of our series in the uh, book of Hebrews. Uh, the plan is to, uh, to, to finish it at some point, um, next year perhaps, um, but we are in part four. And to, to catch you up at this point, uh, the first three verses of Hebrews have shown us that Jesus Christ is the royal son who creates all things. He is the heir of all things. Uh, he is fully God and he upholds all things. It sets up this really big picture of who Jesus is. And it also tells us that he has what we call the threefold office of Christ. He is prophet, priest, and king. Christ is the prophet who speaks the final word from God, the message of salvation in his name. He is priest who makes purification for sins and, and, and reconciles men and women to God. And he is king, we are told, who is exalted at the right hand of the Father, and he rules over his kingdom. So it sets up a, a very big picture of who Jesus is. And what we're going to do, and I never would have guessed that we would do it this way, but we're going to do from verses 4 through to verse 14, we're going to finish chapter 1 in one go, um, a, a record for me, um, and the, the reason uh, we're doing this is we're wanting to see the big picture here that Christ is contrasted with the angels. Perhaps you've read Hebrews 1, and this is just, you find it a bit confusing. You talk about Jesus is God, and he's prophet, and he's priest, and he's king, and then you start comparing him to angels, and you start wondering why. I didn't really know myself until a few weeks. Uh, so this will be this will be good for all of us. What we're going to do is we're going to read all of Hebrews chapter one, uh, and then we will walk through verses four to fourteen. Help us understand who Jesus Christ is and why he is better than Right. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. On high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have forgotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, 
and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels wind, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. For you are the same. And your year will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make you enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of God. Quick survey, quick confused. Good, that's good. I like that honesty. Why? Why? Why contrast Jesus with angels? What possible context could there be for this to be necessary to write to this group of people that we know as the Hebrews? Jewish Christians. Now, they're not struggling, I don't believe, with angel worship. In Colossians chapter 2, the church in Colossae was struggling with paganism. They were struggling with worshipping angels, some kind of new age religion. This is not, I think, what was happening there. What we have here is the context is we have an incorrect understanding of Judaism and the Old Testament of the Bible specifically, and how that works. Out. Angels, Greek word angelos, simply means messenger. Angels are popular today because they're deemed as cute, uh, or the cupid, or they uh, they're well liked, especially by those who have inklings of kind of new age mystical kind of religions. But in biblical times, angels were likes of very different reasons. There was a group called the Essenes, the Qumran community, the Dead Sea sect, one of the, all of those things, same group of people. And they were an example of the kind of false teaching and false understanding of the Old Testament that seemed to be plaguing the audience that the author of Hebrews was writing to. Remember in Acts chapter 1, right at the start of Acts, Jesus' disciples said to, to him, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought, okay, great, you've, you've, you've lived, you've taught, you've healed some people, uh, you died on a cross, that was weird, I don't know why you did that, you rose again, okay, cool. Can you deal with the Romans now? Will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? An oppressed group of people living under Roman rule, these Jews were like, where's the Messiah? Where is our king? Where is our strong man? 
And the Essenes thought similar. But in that 400-year intertestamental period between the old, end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, a lot of weird ideas about angels came to, came to be. They thought that the promise of a new covenant, which Christ brought through his blood, would bring in a restoration of the fortune of Israel. And they thought it would happen in this way. The Essenes taught, looking at the Old Testament, that there would be a prophet, there would be a great prophet, and he would speak on behalf of God. And then they said there would be a Messiah king, and there would be a great king over Israel. And along with that, they thought there would also be a Messiah priest. So a prophet, and then two messiahs, a priest and a king. And the priestly messiah would be at the top. And above that, holding this all together, this prophet, priest, and king, would be the Archangel Michael. These writings exist. They can be looked up on the internet. I don't propose to go uh, read them and stop believing them. But this is what they thought. A prophet, a priest, and a king. And you start to understand why they would think that. Because in Old Testament understanding, they saw a great prophet, they saw a great priest, they saw a great king, they had a messianic expectation that someone would ransom captive Israel, but they never thought those offices would be together. They thought those people would be separate. And then they thought, to hold it all together, to show Israel's strength, there would be an angel, the archangel Michael, over the top of it. And he would be the highest authority in the kingdom under God. We understand how that happened because the roles were never mixed. And it makes sense. If you're a persecuted, oppressed people, you want a strong leader. Do you not? You want... You know, I, I say this. You want Richie McCall, Barack Obama... Um, any kind of just really strong leader to go from the front. And Jesus Christ, he died? He's beaten and whipped? The suffering servant? He doesn't appear to be powerful. And so this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. No. He is powerful, just not in the way that you think. He's better than the angels. You know, in Hebrews 2, verse 5, it says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. That makes sense. The Dead Sea sect thought that God subjected the world to come under angels. Not to angels that God subjected the world to come, but the Son. He is prophet, He is priest, He is king. He fulfills all three offices. Now, we might think in our day and age, that we've moved far past this. That this is silly, superstitious, just angels, really. I looked. I looked. Christian bookstore in New Zealand. I won't mention it. What books do they have on angels? 
I looked up American bookstores, Lifeway. What books do they have on angels? Oh my goodness. I've infiltrated Christianity. If you Google praying for angels, there are tons and tons praying towards angels. There are tons and tons of books. And even in those Christian bookstores in our country, there are books on how to activate your angel. How to have angel power help your family. How to pray to angels. I'm struggling to find this nonsense in my Bible. But they're in Christian bookstores. So there's a fascination with angels. Now this is not a message on, on, on angels. Angels are not the hero of the story. But let's do something to correct this. Because most of us, myself included, don't know much about angels. This text says a few things about angels that we can infer or find directly. In verse 4 it says that they are inferior to Jesus. They have a lesser name than Jesus. They're also, verse 7 tells us, they have a different relationship to God with the Son. They are created. Angels are made. He makes his angels. They are put in the created order, unlike Christ who is forever. Verse 6 tells us that angels worship the Son, the Son being Christ. There's a, a hierarchy here. There's an order. Angels worship Christ. They therefore cannot be greater than Him. And verse 14 tells us, the last verse of the chapter, tells us that are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are servants and messengers sent out to serve. And we see this uh, throughout the Bible, we're told that angels delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses. We're told that angels ministered to Jesus while he was in the wilderness for 40 days. We're told that angels ministered to the disciples uh, while Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. That angels ministered to Christ. Angels are simply servants of God, and that's not to belittle them, but in being compared to the Son, angels are put in their right place. When Christ came into the world, angels announced his coming. They are messengers and servants of God. And I would argue that in ordinary circumstances, they are not seen. We don't see them. You don't activate your own personal guardian angel. You know that? I just want to break your heart right now. So Christ can fill it. Um, you do not have a personal guardian angel. Okay? You don't have one. It's not in the Bible. However, however, God protects his people. And when you pray to him to look after you and watch over you, he may just send angels to do so. And I don't understand it. One day we will, but God does care for his people. And angels are at his beck and call. And ultimately, angels are at the beck and call of the Son to serve. He sends them. 
Great. So, what we have in this text, and we're going to have to move through them quickly. What we have in this text is seven Old Testament quotations. Seven of them. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is simply using the Old Testament to explain who Jesus is. And this is great. Most of these come from the Psalms, but most of these citations are explaining how Jesus is better than the angels. Most of the time when the Old Testament of Scripture, the 39 books of the Old Testament, are quoted in the New Testament, they are Christological. They are showing how the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. And this group, the Hebrews, this audience here, they cannot dismiss these Old Testament citations. And one of the wonderful things about the uh, Old Testament being quoted by the biblical writers in the New Testament is that it gives us an infallible interpretation. The biblical writers don't mess this up. So they're showing us how to rightly understand these Old Testament passages. How do these things point to Christ? If you write down, it's a nice little Bible study for you if you want to do it. You write down everything these texts say about angels, and then write down everything the text says about Christ. You'll notice that they link up perfectly. They're contrasted. They're opposites. Creator, created worship, worship, um, etc. The first thing this text tells us about Christ is that he has a superior name. He is the Son. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Christ has a name. His excellent name is that of Son. And it shows that he is in the position of privilege as the heir of all things. Everything is for him. And if he, we receive anything good, it has ultimately come through him. He created all things, and all things exist for him. Colossians uh, 1.18 tells us that he is the, the firstborn from the dead. This text is, is helping us see the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The first three verses of Hebrews 1 have shown that Christ is eternally the Son. But this verse, here in verse 4, is helping to show that He is given and shown to have the name of the Son after His resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. Acts 13.32, Paul, Paul applies the Sonship to the resurrection. Romans chapter 1, right at the start, verse 3, it says, Concerning His Son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is the Son. But if we ask, prove it, the proof the biblical writers use is the resurrection. The resurrection from the dead is the proof that Christ is the Son, the heir of all things. So Christ has a superior name, and he makes this point in verse 5. You're my son, today I have forgotten you. For which, which of the angels did God ever say this? He quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. 
and he quotes Second Samuel chapter seven, talking about the royal son and the Second Samuel, the Davidic covenant, that Christ is the King. He has this name, Son. The writer here is using this argument negatively. To which of the angels did God ever say? The answer is none. God never called an angel son to have a lesser status. He is making the point to show the greatness of the son in comparison. Christ is better also than David and Solomon and all those other kings because those kings were anointed the royal son when they sat upon the throne. But this son, this royal son, has always been the son. He has always had this high place. Secondly, this text tells us in verse 6, that Christ is, the Son is worshipped as God. Verse 6, it says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. This quote comes from Deuteronomy 32, the very end of that, the Song of Moses, which we can read for ourselves. The very last part of the Song of Moses, the last verse, let all God's angels worship Him. And the word there is Yahweh in the Hebrew. The covenant name of God. Let Moses saying, let all God's angels worship God. And this text is applying that hymn to worship to Christ. It is saying, it is telling us, this is God. The Son is God. You know the verse, vengeance is mine, I shall repay? From Romans chapter 12? Well, that line is part of this Song of Moses. It is right there with let all God's angels worship Him. And so what this tells us is that Christ is God, and not only is Christ God, He is the God who judges. Vengeance is mine, I shall repay. It is Christ who will in due time take vengeance upon His enemies. This destroys some of our misconceptions about Jesus Christ as a total sweetheart. He is the judge. He says, let the little children come to me, but he also holds God's flashing sword. That line is there in Deuteronomy 32, and he will judge all the enemies of God. So the Son is to be worshipped. The angels are to worship him. We are to worship him because he is God. Third thing this text tells us about Christ is that he is the creator He is the Creator. Verse 7 and verses 10 to 12 both have strong themes about Christ being the Creator. Verse 7, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. This quote comes from Psalm 104. Psalm 104. 
And it's a psalm about the creating work of God, the eternality of God, about how He creates things, whatever He wishes. God is eternal, and therefore the creation, the finite creation, it belongs to Him. He makes it. And what it is telling us here about angels, it's a confusing verse. He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. I think the best way to understand it is that God is so in control of creation that he can make his angels be wind. He can make his angels be fire. He can form them. He can shape them. He can do whatever he wants. This verse tells us it's applying that to Christ. Christ is the one over the angels. He is the creator. Why are you here this morning? Maybe you're asking yourself that. You're here because Christ made you and put you here. This points to the Son having special status as Creator. Fourthly, it tells us that Christ is the ascended King. Verses 8 and 9, I won't read the whole thing. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Look at the, the bit before, right at the start of verse 8. Of the Son, he says, Interesting. Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Who's speaking? Who's speaking? This God is speaking. The Father is speaking. And so what this tells us here, of the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever see that? God the Father is calling God the Son God. That's what this is doing. This quote comes from Psalm 45. A wedding psalm for the king. And Oh, I want to preach it. It's so good. A wedding psalm for the king. The king of Israel is shown to be a warrior who conquers his enemies and must be celebrated and here he takes his wife at his side and sits down on his throne. We've already seen 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2, those royal psalms, uh, royal passages applied to the Son. And this is all telling us that the throne of David in Israel is the throne of God and Christ is on it. Your throne is forever and ever. It has no end. He has an eternal kingdom, this standard king. And I want to add, this is a wedding psalm. It was spoken at the wedding of the king of Israel. And it is applied here to Christ. And what that tells us Christ is the conquering warrior king who takes his bride with him and is to be celebrated in his eternal kingdom. Is that not the message of the entire Bible? A story from beginning of redemption and reconciliation, conquering sin, Satan, death, and hell, and taking his bride, the church marriage supper of the Lamb. 
That's how revolution finishes. The theme of a wedding for the king goes throughout scripture. We're told in verse 10, 11, and 12, Psalm 102 is quoted about this king. A psalm about the, the restoration of Zion in Israel. A psalm about the brevity of life. A psalm about, God, have you heard our prayer? We're struggling. This says that everything wears out, verse 10 to 12. Everything wears out. The creation will wear out. But the God, once again, you, Lord, God the Father speaking to the Son, you, Lord, you are God the Son. He is creator. He and his kingdom are eternal. Everything else wears out. The earth will perish, but the Son has superiority over everything that is created. It is a sign that calls for the renewal of the created order. Redeem it. Make it new. Fix it, Lord. And it says that the Son will do that. This all-powerful King, we have a last psalm here in verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110, verse 1. The most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is exalted with God. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He rules and reigns now. He rules over his kingdom which dwells in the hearts of men and women and he promises that it will be there in fullness. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. We must seek to understand it. Christ is the priest king according to Psalm 110. The one who brings men and women to God and who rules over all things. At this point, we understand. At this point, we understand the greatness of Christ. I'm drinking from a fire hose as I read this text. So are you. It's too much to take in. But that's the point. Seven Old Testament references to hit you in the face and say, Hey, if you thought Jesus wasn't quite good enough, you're wrong. He's better than everything else. And it finishes just with one last putting of the angels in their place. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They exist to serve this great one. That's it. Don't worship them. Don't think that they're better than Jesus. Just get this right in your head. Jesus is better. I want to finish with quick points of application. What do we do with this? What do we make of this? Not one of us here, I imagine, is tempted to view angels as ruling above Christ. What do we do with this? 
firstly, we need to see and grasp the reliance, our reliance, on the whole Bible to answer truth claims about the faith. The whole Bible. The Old Testament is the Word of God. The New Testament is the Word of God. I have said many, many times, the quote by Augustine, the early church father, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. What this means is, the New Testament is concealed in the pages of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is in the pages of the new revealed. That means, Everything we read in the New Testament of Scripture, most of us will like the New Testament more than the Old. Everything we read in the New is found in seed form, concealed in the Old Testament. And what that means is that the New Testament of the Bible is simply a commentary on the Old. All those prophecies, all those things pointing forward to Jesus, it is simply a commentary about the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament, we would not be able to say who Jesus Christ is. He would have been a a man rocking up, and it would have been hard to take his claim seriously. Jesus himself pointed back to the Old Testament at numerous times to show who he is, and that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews Secondly, we need to recognize the benefits of Christ's sonship. I'm a human. You people are human. Christ is the son. It says something, but so what? What does it mean? It's not just who he is, but it's also what he does. The son is a mediator part of his role. He's a mediator between God and man. Christ has the right to a kingdom. He has the right to save. He has the right to judge because he is the Son. And in Psalm 2, which we read earlier about the Son, it says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Blessed are all who find refuge in him. If some far-off country doesn't work very well for us, no offense to the military people in this room, but um, if a far-off great big power were coming to us and they wanted to attack us, Tony will save us. Um, And they want to attack us. We would want to take refuge under our king, our leader's military might. Would we not? We want to be protected from enemies. Blessed are all who take refuge in the king and his government. That's what this is saying. It calls us to take refuge in the Son. Refuge from judgment. Whose judgment? His own judgment for the sins that we have committed, for being enemies with God.
God, for being estranged from Him. We take refuge in Him. His blood covers our sins. By faith in Him, we are reconciled to God, and He looks at us as brothers, children of God, those He has covered. We are called to take refuge in Him. Thirdly, we can find rest in the security and permanence of Christ. The permanence of Christ. We see that in Psalm, the quote from Psalm 102, verses 10 to 12. Everything perishes, but you remain. We know that everything that we have can be taken from us. you understand that? Everything you have can be taken from you. It's a scary thought. It's the cause of so much of our anxiety. We worry about our jobs. We worry about our family. We worry about our status. We worry about our friends. We worry about so many things. And all those things can be taken from us. Our health can be taken from us in a moment. And I don't say that to shock us, but it's true. Our hopes, our fears, and our anxieties come into being when we ultimately put our hopes and our trust in that which is created. And what Christ does in contrast to this is he is the one who never changes. Hebrews 13 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The permanence of him and his kingdom ought to give us peace and security and assurance that we have something that cannot be taken from us. And the heir of all things and the creator of all things and the king looks over us Therefore, what can separate us from the love of God? Can trials, tribulations, famine, anything? No. If we have hopes and fears and anxieties, things that keep us up at night, these call us to look away from ourselves to Him and to remind us. This causes us, fourthly and finally, to rejoice in the permanence of the true church. And I want to go there. First Timothy 3.15 says that the church has been built by Christ to be the household of God. The true church, the true believers in the Son, worldwide, experience, and I say this, the exact same permanence the Son has. Cannot be washed away. Cannot be ultimately destroyed. If you martyr Christians or we die or churches get small or we, we struggle, all those who are in Christ are the household of God. They're the true church and they will dwell with Him eternally. We are beneficiaries of the permanence of Christ. 
we receive glorified bodies, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and dwell with the Son forever. There is permanency in your future of Jesus Christ. Because Christ never changes, you will be with him. And that's good news.